0: In 1991, the American Psychiatric Association published a diagnostic criteria for autism. Since then, the reported numbers of people with autism have increased from one in every 2,000 children to one in every 50. Today's guest, Dr. Bryna Siegel, is here to help us sort out the politics of autism. Hello, everyone. My name is Pamela Brewer, and I'm welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Dr. Bryna Siegel is a developmental psychologist, founder and executive director of the Autism Center of Northern Carolina, and the author of The Politics of Autism. Dr. Siegel, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you. Dr. Siegel, I'd like to start off with um, your explaining to us what exactly is autism.
1: Uh, Autism is a, you know, we use the term neurodevelopmental disorder. That means that it is something that is present at birth and affects how the child develops and learns and sees the world from various early, from very earliest development, meaning that usually parents begin to get the idea, especially if they have another older, typically developing child. By the time the child might be 10 to 18 months old, they get a sense that something is, growing differently in the brain, and that um, the child is learning and seeing things differently. That's what neurodevelopmental disorder really means, and that's what autism is, but it's one that affects social development, understanding how people interact with each other, back and forth, being able to read and participate in back and forth conversation and play and language learning, and uh, so it has early roots that have a pervasive effect on all aspects of development.
0: And as early as 10 to 18 months, parents should be able to get an inkling that maybe something is up.
1: Right. And often these days, kids are being diagnosed between about 18 and 36 months of age. Huh. So early. It's pretty, it's pretty early because the, er- the earliest thing that we see and that definitely... Concerns both parents and pediatricians is uh, usually a a failure of early language development.
0: I see. You you talk about the changes in the diagnosis of autism to the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. What are your thoughts about the changes? How did they impact, if at all, our understanding of autism?
1: Well, they've had a great question because they've had a tremendous impact. uh, first of all, autism has actually been in the DSM since uh, the nineteen eighties.
0: And the and DSM, it, let me just kept... let me just interrupt you. For those who don't know what the DSM is, it is Dr. Siegel. Oh,
1: <laughs> the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. So it's sort of the the guidebook or the bible that's sometimes called for uh, psychiatrists and psychologists giving diagnoses. Gotcha. And, there's been several several versions that were now on DSM-5. And uh, with each of these uh, revised criteria, um, autism has gotten more and more prevalent. And when we look back, uh, we can see that it's changed. So uh, when I've been involved with autism for the last 40 years and uh, was a participant in standardized diagnosis of autism in the 90s and the 2000s, and uh, for, the DSM, for the DSM, for that whole process. And uh, you can, and there are scientific papers that show how it's getting broader. Um, one of the things that has changed a lot is that back in, let's say, 1980, when we had DSM uh, <clears> 3, <throat> about 70% of children with autism also had some degree of intellectual impairment. And these days, uh, 70% don't. So we know that the new cases are coming from kids who have less intellectual impairment and usually less impairment overall. Um, They're still handicapped by their social and communication difficulties, but they're not as pervasively handicapped as kids were 40 years ago when they got that diagnosis. Um, Part of, of, you know, you might ask why, Um, aside from the changing in the DSM, um, we're seeing that there's been in all of psychiatry, as, as I know, you know, that, that there's more standard diagnosis. We use questionnaires and interviews and standard measures that you get a score on and so forth. And the ones used for autism, um, while they are very good at identifying autism, often don't have scores for other disorders that it could be. So when you have a very young child, um, Things look uh, more like one another. So early signs of autism can, in a let's say, 24-month-old, uh, early language delays, early learning problems, extreme anxiety or shyness, um, uh, even coming from a home where you're not really used to interacting with unfamiliar people, can all those things can make you look rather autistic um, in a in a psychiatric interview, if you can think of it, psychiatric interviewing of 24-month-olds. And <laughs> yeah. so, <laughs> and, yeah, so the lack of, uh, you know, specificity of the uniqueness of autism symptoms early on sometimes uh, accrues an autism diagnosis, and we might refer to that as an autism-first diagnosis. In other words, people realize, well, it could be that this child has intellectual disability, but... Getting the autism diagnosis first um, allows access to autism services. And some of the early services for autism that have become entitlements through IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, through education law, and through medical insurance, um, are more intensive. And so, uh, you know, one might, I sometimes call it diagnosing for dollars. Um, Not that, and not to say that as if it's a bad thing, but that if you were a parent, and you wanted your child to get as much help as possible you wanted your 24 month old to talk if you were told well that he has if we go ahead and give him an autism diagnosis he's going to get a lot of intensive therapy and later on the diagnosis might clarify itself and we might see that it is more of a transient language delay but meanwhile the child's gotten a lot of help
0: you know when you use the term diagnosing uh for dollars it- it really does sound kind of unpleasant. Um, what happens if, uh, as you describe, a, the possibility of a child being diagnosed um, with autism and then, you know, X amount of time later you discover that it really wasn't autism? Do they change the diagnosis? Do the dollars go away?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, first of all, one of the problems in our system of care for families living with autism is that um, another term that I sometimes use is, is and adios um, meaning that most kids with autism are diagnosed in specialty clinics or university medical centers and all these specific, you know, autism instruments are used by clinicians who've been specially trained to use them and they get the diagnosis. The parents are told the child has autism and, um, And sometimes they're sent for genetic panels or neuroimaging, which don't provide any usual treatment, usually don't provide any kind of information that's useful for treatment. And it's kind of adios. The medical establishment is done with kids with autism at that point because most of the treatments are either behavioral or educational or other psychotherapeutic treatments. And so parents are kind of left on their own, and there is no... Um, medical home for autism. So when we think about kids who have diabetes or cystic fibrosis or even kids who are deaf, there's going to be continuity of care, a clinic, a clinician, a place that parents go back and they say, okay, well, when he was diagnosed, I was told to do this, that, and the other thing, and that was a year ago, and now he's talking. What do I do now? Um, So we don't have um, medical insurance in particular has not really – come around to authorizing uh, continuity of care for autism. Clinicians aren't particularly trained to provide care after the diagnosis. And so, you know, what we see happening is that parents get that diagnosis and they're kind of left on their own, which is really stressful for a parent who wants to do the best for their child, Um, you know, especially when they hear that early intervention is important and the brain is most plastic and responsive early on and and they're just, they can get easily panicked that they're not doing enough or not doing the right stuff.
0: Dr. Siegel, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, I'd like for you to talk about some of the options that you believe are really important for the parents who are dealing with a child who has been diagnosed uh, as being on the okay. spe- spectrum. Folks, right. this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk. We'll be back in just a moment. Dr. Siegel, um, let me ask you a couple of questions first before we talk about what uh, you think would be useful for parents. When you hear that your child is diagnosed with autism, or nowadays it would be on the spectrum, is there a time that this goes away? Is this a lifelong uh, diagnosis? It
1: is a lifelong diagnosis. Um, There are a small number of kids who really... Don't have this diagnosis later on and uh, go on through school without any special supports. And most of those kids who make those really remarkable improvements are, we know who they are by the time they're five or six years old. Okay. And uh, and but uh, that the other other kids will continue to need support. But the thing that's most concerning to us, to professionals in this field these days, is that when we start to look at the adult literature what we see is that 85% of adults with an autism diagnosis are living with parents and that 90 to 95% are unemployed or underemployed. And, you know, this is given that many who are adults with autism now are uh, maybe more severely affected than this new wave who have more mild symptoms that were diagnosed say in the last 10 years. Um, when the criteria have uh, have changed over the last fifteen years, has so it?
0: So, is it have changed? It, is it simply? I'm sorry. Is is it simply that we've perhaps broadened the diagnosis, and what was once considered autism now includes like half a dozen other things? Or why is there such a change?
1: Well, it's 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 all really interesting. A lot of people are studying it. An article came out in Pediatrics last week about this. Um, I think that, uh, for example, when we had uh, DSM four, which came before DSM five, as you know, um, there was a line in it that said you can't diagnose autism and attention deficit disorder in the same child, and some people did anyway. But when that was removed in DSM five. There started to be studies that showed that about a third of kids with autism also met criteria for attention deficit disorder. Then you can start to argue, well, which is really a more hand-capping condition? Um, the same is true with anxiety disorders. Um, there's also, as we talk about a spectrum, it sort of encourages people to think about the, the tail ends. And like, just like thinking about anxiety disorders or depression, there's some place where you as a clinician, draw a line between this is just an anxious person and this is a person with an anxiety disorder. And I think we're getting to that point with autism, that we need to be more clear about where there is uh, autism symptoms and where we really have a disorder that is going to need treatment. And and even if there's just symptoms but not really a diagnosable disorder, it speaks to the vulnerability of that individual and their need for support so that it doesn't become more, the symptoms don't become more severe.
0: So for the parent who's just gotten this diagnosis, he or she, I imagine, perhaps not in shock, but certainly now looking with a great deal of concern for the future and really wanting a miracle fix, wouldn't you say? Or do you find that?
1: You know, absolutely. And, and And that's why I get frustrated with this sort of diagnose and adios approach. You know, the, the doctor does not schedule any appointments after that diagnostic assessment most often. And that's when the parent reaches like the real low point in their life. And, uh, and what do they do? They turn to the internet, they turn to other parents. Um, they turn to family members who may or may not have any knowledge at all about autism. And that's where I feel like the truth becomes vulnerable. There's a lot on the internet that does, you know, miracle cures. That's what's out there on the internet, um, along with good information. And uh, a lot of the good information is buried in websites from universities and publications that really aren't accessible to many parents. Uh, But the marketing for vitamins and minerals is brought down to the level that any parent can think, well, why not? Why not try this? Um, So it is very hard, right, when parents get a diagnosis. And we know that the diagnosis of autism is a major life stressor, just like getting a diagnosis of cancer or having a close family member die or losing your home. And uh, we aren't treating it that way. And um, so what we do at the Autism Center of Northern California is we focus on autism family wellness on, you know, like they they say on an airplane, you know, know, put on your own mask before attempting to help others. We really try to get parents to understand that they need to be mentally in a good place if they're going to be able to do the best for their child.
0: And so many times when anything happens to a child, uh, the parent begins to blame themselves for not having done X or having done too much of Y.
1: Absolutely. And um, we know that there are... um, Genetic influences in autism, but they're really complicated, and uh, we they don't really hold as much explanatory power as we once thought they did, and so we don't have a lot of information to give parents about what the cause is in their particular case. Um, we have a few indicators. We know that, for example, like many neurodevelopmental disorders um autism occurs more often in older parents and we're seeing in America the average age of first parenting has uh increased by about uh 10 years in the last uh 30 and so the average parent is now 35 and not 25 and uh and so we're seeing some increase in incidence that's likely due to that we're seeing more kids from in vitro fertilization and we're seeing some suggestion that there might be more cases of autism there but then a lot of those parents are older, so it's really complicated. And so there's nothing a parent can, I don't know, hang their hat on in terms of you know this did or did not uh, contribute to your child's autism, which which of course makes the coping even even more difficult.
0: Absolutely. Are are there any gender or racial or any kind of statistics that would, other than the age of the parent and perhaps IVS, that might suggest uh, autism as a potential option?
1: Well, one of the things we know, and, and this is where the genetic research on autism started, is that there's four to five times more males than females mm-hmm. who have autism. Um, so most of the kids that I see are going to be boys. Um, there are no ethnic differences to the extent that it's been studied in different cultural groups. Nothing has, nothing has come up. I mean, the usual things where kids from poorer families get diagnosed later because they have less access to healthcare and, and, and that sort of thing. But, um, what I, what I want to make sure I have a chance to talk about, because you asked a really important question about, um, how, how this is important to parents and what they need to do is that um, when I look at the research, we see that parent training is really important. And by parent training, I mean that if you have a child who's diagnosed as deaf, for example, not autistic, the parent has to go out and start learning sign language and do they want to teach their child lip reading. And they need to learn all kinds of skills that parents don't have if they don't happen to have a child who's deaf. And so we do parent training where parents come in for a week after the diagnosis, Monday through Friday, 9 to 3, just one set of parents and their child with one interventionist who teaches them how to get the child to look at them, follow directions, take turns, play with toys, uh, not scream when they have their shirt put on or taken off, um, how, to, how to navigate everyday life. And in teaching parents these skills, we also give them the vocabulary that therapists use to refer to teaching these things. So as the parents become basically consumers of autism treatments, they've got a vocabulary. They can, they can navigate. They know what's under the hood. They know how to screen and evaluate people who are potentially working with their child or are working with their child. And I think this is a really critical piece of the autism puzzle that's not there readily for a lot of parents, and that's missing and again, health insurance needs to step up and have a way of more readily funding these kind of programs
0: you know as I hear about the program you've just just described and the services that are um, that are available it it's almost heartbreaking to think that so many parents don't have an option to exactly the kinds of services that you provided. It seems like that should be the automatic first referral that would help families, would help I, you know, parents I, I and children agree.
1: yeah what what usually happens first we've we've had a lot of emphasis on using methods of applied behavior analysis, so you know basically the same principles that cognitive behavioral therapy is based on. Um, being used with children with autism, and it it stems from uh, some research that was done in the early 90s talking about the effectiveness and at that time asserting that it would uh, recover uh, 50% of the children with autism, and no one's talking 50% anymore, but it's still become the most widely used um, intervention, but it's more appropriate for some kids than others, and um, it doesn't help the parent because even if a child is getting this applied behavior analysis or ABA services, even as much as 40 hours a week, there's still 160 hours a week that the child is awakened with their parents. So the parents need to be able to uh, follow through and manage, and they really have what we call the natural opportunities. When their child wants something to eat, wants to go outside, has something they want to show or tell the parent, that's when you need to be practicing getting the child to use his words or read a facial expression and so on. So um, that's why parent training is really a, an important first-line treatment for everybody.
0: And, and I hear a lot of concern and compassion, um, certainly in, in your book, The Politics of Autism, but also um, just as we speak today Um there's so much that could be done and and you talk about uh some of the um uh for lack of a better term fake news that exists about autism what are some of the myths or or a myth that that parents may typically get hung up in as they're thinking about their child
1: well i think one of one of the big ones that they read on the internet is that this is all going to be over after they get intensive behavioral therapy. And unfortunately, what it means is that we're now spending the majority of lifetime treatment dollars on children with autism before they're five. And they're going to be school-aged children and then adults for much, much more of their life. And while early intervention is really critical, we need to pace ourselves and we need to uh, be better prepared to have high quality programs throughout the child's lifespan. I mean, I think part of the well, you used the word "bin," so I think one of the the big problems is that you know the media does stories about you know started with Rain Man, but we have The Big Bang Theory, we have all these these television programs that either say or imply that very clever, interesting people have autism, and unfortunately, that's what is not what most families are dealing with.
0: I see. Dr. Siegel, we're going to take a break and we will be right back. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk. And I'm having a conversation with Dr. Bryna Siegel, who is the author of The Politics of Autism. We'll be right back. Dr. Siegel, let me ask you about the title of your book, The Politics of Autism. Say more about that. I would think that that title might upset some folks.
1: Well, um, you know, I think there's uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of politics in many things today. I mean, po- some of the politics has to do with what gets funded, um, the gap between the research we need and the research we have in terms of helping people with autism. So one of the areas of politics I talk about in the book is that about 75% of autism research dollars have gone for really important basic work in genetics and in neuroimaging, looking at the brain and uh, looking at genes. And we've learned a lot about how genes make brain, but virtually none of it is specific to autism. And we've identified 150 genes at, over the last 40 years that are associated with autism. But it only these genes are only found in about 15% of people with autism. And some of them are not inherited, so they're not useful for genetic counseling. And some of the ones that are inherited are present in parents who are unaffected, so it's not useful for genetic counseling. And so I would argue that much of our research dollars have not have had, they well, the, the research dollars have not had any direct help for families living with autism, and I think we need to call basic research what it is, basic research, and fund it as basic research, and either redirect or add to autism treatment dollars to have more available to study what kinds of training programs and education programs and life skill programs and vocational training programs and adult community living pr- are going to be most effective because this is a lifetime disorder. What is so that's, that's a big, big piece of the politics.
0: What is a first step that a parent should take in, in your view, given the current landscape with respect to treatment and support?
1: I think they need to understand, their, have an understanding of their child as an individual. So, you know, I talked earlier about going on the internet. And um, part of the problem is that some people will say, well, there there is no autism, there are many autisms, plural. Right. Well, that's kind of getting there, which is that in earlier work I've done, I've written about autistic learning disabilities or autistic learning styles, meaning that there are particular problems that people with autism have, like not being able to read faces or understand language as it's the pace at which it's usually spoken or not being motivated by social circumstances. And kids with autism vary on these. And so the first thing parents have to understand is how their child as an individual, which of these autistic learning disabilities they have in order to focus treatment. And um, without that, you know, you're going to be um, on the internet saying that, you know, this vitamin is good for autism or uh, the, of course the worst, political situation we've had in autism is the myth that vaccines might cause autism, which which they do not. And there's been more than enough uh, studies showing that over and over again, and resources wasted on beating that dead horse. But um, people get misinformation, I think, more easily than they get good information sometimes.
0: Dr. Siegel, there's so much more, obviously, that we could talk about, um, but we're sort of running up against our time today. Um, Is there any place that you believe is credible or any resource that you believe is credible uh, that you can uh, recommend to listening parents?
1: Uh, Well, I I guess I could... I could shamelessly recommend that they check out um, the website for my Autism Treatment Center, which is Autism Center of Northern California, and see what kind of programs there are there, um, or some of my um, earlier work, um, especially a book called "Helping Children with Autism Learn." Um, I think that parents, you know, need to kind of prepare themselves with a lot of different tools to start uh, approaching how to get, get the best for their child with autism.
0: That sounds like a perfect recommendation. And by the way, Dr. Siegel's name is spelled B R Y N A S I E G E L. Dr. Siegel, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for joining us today here on Mind Talk. You're welcome. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and Twenty Six by Two Communications. It is available to you online, on demand, in several outlets, but you can certainly start at Mind Talk M Y N D T A L K dot O R G, and I. I encourage you to sign up for the free weekly giveaway and the free program guide and folks you remember always if it's unacceptable it's unacceptable you take care